0: March 10th, 1873, Southeastern Kansas. In 1873, there are many ways to die on the road between Independence, Kansas, and Fort Scott, Kansas. The Osage Trail is a dangerous one. Never mind natural disasters, unforgiving terrain, tornadoes, blizzards, rattlesnakes, this area has a well-earned reputation for harboring outlaws and raiders from nearby Indian territory. Lately, settlers are especially jumpy. For the past couple of years, a surprising number of people have disappeared while traveling the Osage Trail. Even seasoned settlers used to the dangers of the Old West are becoming uneasy. Remains of murdered men have turned up on the prairie. There is talk of forming a vigilance committee. Matters come to a head when Dr. William York, the brother of a prominent Kansas State Senator, goes missing on March 10th, 1873, on his way home from Fort Scott. The Fort Scott Daily Monitor. The trace of him is lost at Big Hill or Drum Creek, where it is more than probable he was foully murdered to get possession of his horse and other property which he might have had about him. The locality where he disappeared is a notorious one, this not being the first event of a similar kind that has transpired in the neighborhood." Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice. Be politically incorrect and judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also. I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate, so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Listeners, tonight's case is a very famous case. For a long time, it was probably the most famous murder case in Kansas it's not until the 20th century that more famous cases come out of Kansas and by the way thank you Truman Capote and BTK so there is a great deal of information out there about this case books, YouTubes, TV shows, podcasts honestly I never thought it was a very interesting story so even though one of my listeners suggested the case, I put it on my list to do sometime. But I was scrolling through Reddit and saw a recent news article about it from the Wichita Eagle. As you know, I'm easily distracted, so I went down the rabbit hole and decided to cover the case this week. That article that got me so interested is by Amy Renee Liker, L-E-I-K-E-R, and there's another one from 2013, a retrospective by Tim Potter. Potter and Liker are two of the Wichita Eagles' really good crime reporters. I found the case also in a book I have on my true crime shelf, Murder and Mayhem in Southeast Kansas by Larry Wood. It's a good account of this case. For primary sources, I use the local newspapers of the day. There's also a long account with lots of sources posted on Wikipedia. I question some of the information on Wiki, but it's pretty good too. Anyway, I put a bunch of links in the show notes. Before I get started on The Devil's Kitchen, I wanted to talk about one other thing concerning the podcast. That's five-star reviews. One of my favorite podcasts is Evidence Locker. And the host says that five-star reviews give podcasts street cred but to be honest, I only have four five-star reviews. I look at other podcasts and there are hundreds out there. Now, contrary to what my friends think, I did not write those for myself and I only know personally the writer of the very first one, my beta listener is what I call her. And offline, she gives me plenty. constructive criticism just this month I did get a five-star review and it just made my week maybe my month it really motivated me to get another case done even though I've been sick with a sinus infection and my husband and I are moving house from the country into town by the way that review is from a listener with the handle go go cluster I think that might be a nod to Goo Goo Clusters, a truly, truly awesome candy bar. I think of them as kind of a southern thing, sort of like a Snickers bar, but much, much better. Lots more peanuts. I love them. I guess you can tell. So anyway, shout out to you, Go Go Cluster. You have great taste in podcasts and delicious chocolatey-peanutty treats. Sorry, got off track. Anyway, if you could give me a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, it would be super, and I would be truly grateful. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Murder. Dr. William York is born in 1840, son of Minor, Manasseh, and Marjorie York. Minor and Marjorie have a number of children, including older sister, Clara Simmons, and older brother, Alexander. And there are much younger siblings, including Edward and Augusta. The Yorks form a respected family. Minor and Alexander and William are officers in the Union Army during the American Civil War. William serves as a battlefield surgeon. Alexander rises to the rank of Colonel. In 1873, Alexander is serving as a Kansas State Senator in southeastern Kansas. William is a well-known physician. He's married to Mary Gilmore York, and they have three children, very young. William and Mary live near Onion Creek, which is near Cherryvale, Kansas, in Montgomery County. Listeners, let's get a picture of where we're talking about. If you put your finger on the middle of the continental United States, you'll be in Kansas. At the very bottom right-hand part of the state, the southeastern part of Kansas, are the counties of Montgomery, Labette, and Cherokee. To the south is Oklahoma in 1873, That is Indian territory, the Osage Nation. To the east are the states of Missouri and Arkansas. This part of Kansas was something of a battlefield in the Civil War, which has only been over for eight years. Before and throughout the war, southern Missouri and Kansas are the site of skirmishes between Yankee and Confederate sympathizers. There are cities and towns there, And the area is settled somewhat, however, make no mistake, this area is part of the Wild West. Today, Cherryvale is still a little town in Montgomery County, about 2,000 people. It was settled mainly by veterans of the Union Army who drive Osage Indians off the land south into Oklahoma. The closest city of any size is Independence, Kansas, which is the county seat. Today, only a population of about 10,000, maybe twice that in the whole county. So, even today, a very rural area. There are a couple of stories about why William York is traveling in March, 1873 on the treacherous Osage Trail, but this much I think I can say is known for sure. William left home at the beginning of March, variously the first, the second, his wife says the the third. So that's what I think we should go with. He goes to visit his parents who live in Fort Scott, Kansas. Um, 85 to 90 miles or 55 kilometers to the northeast. Fort Scott is right on the Missouri border with Kansas. Looking at how fast people traveled in those days, um, Dr. York is on horseback. A good guess is the trip should take three, maybe four days he stays stays with his parents a few days and starts back home the last confirmed time william york is seen is on march 10th near osage mission kansas osage mission is literally a catholic mission founded to minister to the osage indians it has an interesting history during the civil war it's used as a union army fort later on As many of the Osage Indians are driven south to Oklahoma, it becomes the town of St. Paul, Kansas. When William gets there and waters his horse, he's about halfway home from Fort Scott. It's hard to tell when people start worrying about why William hasn't gotten home. I would think he would let his wife know when he leaves Fort Scott, maybe by telegram or message with somebody who's traveling back that way. Or maybe he said, I'm coming back on such and such a day. So my guess is she starts worrying within a week, maybe, and contacts his family in Fort Scott. What's known for sure is that after a couple of weeks, a serious search party goes looking for him. The exact date and time and who vary depending on what you read. I mentioned the Wikipedia article, and this is one place I think it's wrong. It says, Colonel Ed York, leading a company of some 50 men, questioned every traveler along the trail and visited all the area homesteads. Wiki doesn't say where he leaves from, but if it's Ed York, he's probably leaving from Fort Scott. But Edward York is only about 20 years old in 1873, so he's too young to have been a colonel in the Army. So I think they're confusing him with Senator York, the older brother who was a colonel in the Union Army. I would say this is what the most likely story is. On March 24, Senator Alexander York, who was a colonel in the Union Army, and some other men, variously reported as a few to as many as 75 men. My guess, a whole bunch of guys form a search party, and they fan out over the countryside near the trail William would have taken. This is coming from Independence, Kansas, which would go through where William lives up to Fort Scott. William's younger brother, Edward, probably with just a few men, or, or even maybe by himself, leads, leaves Fort Scott heading the other way toward William's home near Cherryvale. This is all most likely organized by Senator York. Now, I will say I question this a little, this particular account, because the Kansas legislature meets in Topeka, 150 miles away during the spring, and York is... A first-time senator so would he have been able to get away from Topeka for this uh, yes I I think so there is usually a break of even now two or three weeks in the middle of the session which the whole session usually runs from January to sometime in May depending on how much business there is going on so he probably could get away As I researched a little more, I decided he may have wanted to get away. State Senator York is embroiled in a political bribery scandal involving a two-term U.S. senator from Kansas, Samuel Pomeroy. In 1873, in fact, from the beginning of the United States until 1913, when the 17th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified, U.S. Senators were elected by state legislators, not by popular vote. So U.S. Senator Pomeroy, who is seeking re-election, allegedly tries to bribe State Senator Alexander York for his vote. Now, York's story, which is, by the way, disputed by Senator Pomeroy, is that the U.S. Senator offered him $8,000, $150,000 in today's money for his vote, giving him $7,000 in cash up front. But honest politician that he is, Senator York told two other people about the bribe they all decided that he should take the money but then turn pomeroy in which he did telling the entire kansas legislature what he said happened he is apparently believed at any rate pomeroy is not reelected not even close there is an inquiry by the us senate And they find that the alleged bribe was a, quote, concerted plot, unquote, by Pomeroy's enemies like Alexander York. But they don't do much about it. Depending on the political leanings of the newspapers of the time, either Senator York was a hero or a liar. All that meaning he might be fine with getting away from Topeka for a while. Whatever the case, he has a good reason. His brother is missing under very troubling circumstances. Whatever the logistics of the search are, no sign of William is found during the initial search. According to several reports, there is one important account Encounter during the search. Um, I'll read you this from one of the reports. Um, it says about March 28th, but the dates are all over the place on this. Sometimes they vary as much as, you know, more like the middle of March that he does this, so it, it's kind of hard to say. Um, anyway, sometime toward the end of March, Colonel York and and sometimes accounts say Alexander, or Ed, um, and some men stop at a small farm just off the Osage Trail, just a few miles from Osage Mission. They note a small stable near the road and a little frame house with a hand-lettered sign saying groceries. They inquire of the family about whether they've seen William. The family that owns the farm is the Bender family. It purportedly consists of John, Sr., aged 56, his wife, Mary, 52, son, John, Jr., 26, and daughter, Kate, 16. They learn that the family operates a general store selling tobacco, crackers, sardines, candy powder, and shot. And another account almost like this says um, candles. So... I don't know. I Candy's a thing in the olden days, but maybe it's not one of those necessary things a traveler might want to buy. Candles might be more important to a traveler. Anyway, in addition, they offer simple meals and sleeping accommodations for travelers and feed and water for their horses. They report they have not seen William at all. When the men notice that Katie Bender advertises herself as a medium they ask perhaps facetiously whether she can use her powers to contact the dead to help them find william and the other missing travelers kate appears somewhat nervous but she offers to help them if they can come back later perhaps in a couple of days then her brother tells them that he was recently shot at, in an area not far from the house, and offers to show them the area. Um, what I just told you is mainly from "Murder and Mayhem," Larry Wood's book about the case. Actually, it's there's a bunch of a bunch of cases in his book. This is one of the chapters, um, and this story. Or something pretty similar is in a lot of accounts of this case. Sometimes it's presented that the men are immediately suspicious of the benders. That they wonder whether Kate and John are trying to lure them away from the house for some reason. In my opinion, this didn't happen at all. I think it's an embellishment after the fact. Now, it is true that Kate advertises herself as a spiritualist and a healer. There's a great website called kansasmemory.org. It's run by the Kansas Historical Society, and it has historical pictures and artifacts from this case out there online. One of the pictures is of Kate Bender's ad, Professor Miss Katie Bender is how she bills herself. And she claims to heal just about anything that you can think of. I can't tell if it's from a newspaper or just an advertising card. In fact, there are several interesting things to look at concerning the case. Um, And spoiler alert. If you're on that website, just look for the Bender case. That's what we will be talking about. If the men are truly suspicious, they don't act on their suspicions with regards to the benders, the search for William and others who are missing continues all over the area. On March 30th... Eh possibly a couple of weeks into the search, locals hold a meeting. There is great concern about vigilante activity in the area. Many locals fear being blamed for the disappearances. The group, led by local official Leroy Dick, decide to conduct thorough searches of area homesteads. Many volunteer to have their premises searched. Later, it will be said that John Bender, who attended the meeting with his son, did not volunteer to have his place searched. Searches, legal and otherwise, are conducted throughout Montgomery and Labette counties all along the Osage Trail. In April, Senator Alexander York offers a $100 reward for information about his brother, William. But it will be nearly a month before anything is known about what happened to Dr. William York, age 33, physician, husband, and father. Again, accounts vary on how William's fate is discovered. But I'm going to go with the story in The Independence Republican from May 11, 1873 by its own headline, the only correct account yet published. Let's take them at their word. Intelligence was received that a family named Bender had left their claim near Big Hill Creek in Labette County, where they were running a little store for the purpose of supplying travelers with refreshments as they might need while passing. The departure was discovered by someone. Listeners in other accounts, it's a neighbor named Silas Toller or Silas Tolls, T-O-L-E-S, who passed noticing that a calf, which had been tied up, had starved to death. A closer inspection showed that all were gone with what movables could be carried in a wagon. The neighbors concluded to look further into the matter, their suspicions being immediately aroused toward that family as being the cause of so many missing in the neighborhood. Toller comes back with local official Leroy Dick and some others, and they break into the house. Listeners, there is a very interesting website, leatherrockhotel.com, for a bed and breakfast in Cherryvale and a museum there. It has a very, 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 very thorough article about the case. I felt like it was probably the best one that I that I saw. A popular exhibit at the museum is Hammers supposedly taken from the Bender house as evidence by Leroy Dick. Listeners, I know, You're thinking, ooh, could modern forensic techniques learn anything from those hammers? Well, maybe. We'll talk about that later. It's obvious that the benders have fled the sea. Inside the house, Leroy and others can see that there is a partition dividing the front from the back. It's just a one-room house. In the front, is the little store. In the back are a couple of beds and a stove and a trap door. When they lift the trap door, the sickening stench of death is released. They find a little cellar about six feet deep at one end and only three feet at the other where there is an opening to the outside back of the house. A couple of searchers drop into the small cellar with a light. Uh, I don't know about you but no way I would have done that. From the Kansas City Times here and there little damp places could be seen as if water had come up from the bottom or been poured down from above. They groped about over these splotches and held up a handful to the light. The ooze smeared itself over their palms and dribbled through their fingers. It was blood, thick, fetid, clammy, sticking, blood that they had found groping there in the void Ooh, ghost stories are made of this kind of thing ed york is notified and comes to the scene this is may 5th 1873 okay back to the most correct story his attention was attracted to a piece of subsoil on the surface This is out in the garden, out back. Looking more closely, he discovered a straight mark across the furrow where the ground was slightly sunken. By looking closely, he was able to trace the outlines of a grave. The end rod of a wagon was used to probe the ground. It was not difficult to thrust the rod in its full length so the dirt's been disturbed. I don't know how long the raw end rod of a wagon is, Um, but there are reports the graves are as deep as seven feet. Oh, spoiler alert, we're going to find some graves. Digging was immediately commenced, and the body of Dr. William H. York was discovered. It was found that he had been killed by blows on the head with a blunt, instrument, one on the back of the head at the base of the brain, being sufficient to produce instant death. There were two others on either side of his head, and his throat was cut from ear to ear so deeply that the head was nearly severed from the body. Two hammers and a hatchet were found on the premises, one of which fitted the wound on the back of the head. The Times article shows a diagram of the house. It doesn't exactly match the description they give in their own article, but it's probably close. Other newspapers also have diagrams and drawings and descriptions of the house, and they vary, of course, from paper to paper. There also are photographs of the house at the time, making some guesses. I would describe the scene of the crime like this. Very near the road, the Osage Trail, on the south side is a small stable. Nearby is a tiny frame house, about 16 by 20 feet. 320 square feet or about 30 square meters. So very, very very tiny for a family of four adults, at least today. Probably back in those days, not so tiny. The photographs remind me of a typical child's drawing of a house, square front with triangly roof, two narrow windows on each side of a door in the middle with a couple of other narrow windows on the sides of the house at the back end and a little tiny door at the back. No porch except a couple of steps up to the front door. I don't see a chimney, but it looks like there's a little stove at the back of the house. My guess it opens through a hole in the wall or maybe under the eaves. The little, um, let's see, sorry, I lost my place. Um, Inside. By all accounts, there is a cloth partition that divides the front room from the back. The little store/slash hospitality area is in the front. A small counter on one side with a table in the middle in front of the partition. There are two narrow beds in the back with a creepy trapdoor in the middle of the back of the room. A trapdoor like this to a cellar wouldn't be that unusual at the time. A lot of frontier homes had root cellars under or close to the house. There's a little outhouse out away from the house and a garden out back and a stable out to the side of the house, a little ways away. There is a prevailing theory about the murders. Um, Oh... Spoiler alert, William won't be the only body found at the Bender Place. If you ever see drawings or reenactments, uh, this is what's usually portrayed. Here's a very lurid version of the murders from the Kansas City Times. In this position, right in front of the partition, it was an easy thing for the male villains in the front apartment. Now, Notice they say the front, most accounts say the back apartment. To strike the form clearly lined and resting against the white cloth. And when the blows of the sledge and hammer had knocked the victim with a crushed and broken skull senseless and helpless to the floor, the female fiends would cut their throat. The execution was as simple as it was dreadful, but though it would seem resistance to such well-planned murder of the trusting and unsuspecting was impossible, the walls gave silent evidence that some of the murdered ones had not been sent to their doom without an effort to defend their lives. No less than a dozen bullet holes in the sides and roof of the house attest that armed men, when struck down so relentlessly, had attempted to shoot their murderers. But unfortunately, the aims had been wild. A slightly different account from the only correct account. Travelers were seated in such a manner that their heads would lean against and indent the cloth partition which crossed the room. Someone stationed behind the curtain would then strike them with a hammer and someone in the front room was ready to finish the job. After that, they were taken to the trap door where they were thrown in, their throats cut, and they were left until night when they were carried out and buried in the patch ground above alluded to, the little garden out back. The obvious motive is robbery. It's thought that some of the victims may have carried large sums of money, but others surely and reliably only have very little money on them. It's not uncommon for people on the Osage Trail to have a lot of money with them they could be businessmen on their way to buy land or livestock or equipment or they could be people who are relocating to or from the area but my guess is those people would be very cautious so the benders would have to be pretty good First, at deciding who a well healed victim might be and in conning them into somehow letting them know they have a lot of money and not guarding the money very carefully. Uh, So my guess is the Bender's targeted convenient victims. When the time was right, when nobody else is around, probably at night, Maybe prosperous people would be a priority, but um, even just stealing somebody's horse could could be worth their while. Who knows? Um, the bodies are found with very little clothing or valuables in the grave. It's also likely they murdered people just to get their horses or wagons or whatever they had with them. Good horses, saddles, wagons in those days could sell for well over a $100. Um, oh, I forgot to convert that. Uh, let's see, a lot of money, (laughs) a lot of money to people who are just kind of trying to scratch a living out on a, a poor farm in Kansas. Considering the price of food is just pennies, in those days, even bad horses and harnesses might be worth committing murder to people like the benders or just a guy's clothing or his gun or his knife might be worth their while. Besides William York, seven more bodies are found in the garden behind the bender house. Again, reports vary. In fact, a few places say remains of a few more bodies or pieces of bodies were found at the farm. But putting all things together, I think eight is the best number. I have some confidence this is a pretty good list of the actual Bender victims, the canonical eight, if you will. LG, or maybe Benjamin Brown, of Cedarvale, Kansas. Brown is on the trail to make a horse and wagon trade or possibly sale it's reported that he was last seen at Osage Mission bound for home. Possibly had as much as $60 dollars on him. According to one account, he was identified by a friend from a silver ring on the body. Odd that the Benders wouldn't have taken that though. W. F. McCraddy, also of Cedar Vale, He is a Union veteran of the Civil War, so he's probably in his late 20s or early 30s, or, I mean, he could be older. Sources report he was on his way to Indiana to contest a land claim there. Henry F. McKenzie, about 30 years old, he left November 6th or 7th Uh, also on the trail headed to Indiana. According to his sister, a Mrs. J. Thompson of Hamilton County, Indiana, he was coming back there to live with her. She says he had very little money and was traveling on foot. Peter Boyle, sometimes William or Johnny, or just Mr. Is from Howard County there is no Howard County Kansas anymore I found out it split into Chautauqua and Elk counties a little more west and north of the area we're talking about from a newspaper report quote his body was so mutilated as to be hardly recognizable but his poor widow identified him by his peculiar shirt, which her own hands had made for him. He had started on foot for Osage Mission sometime last December, unquote. There's another officially unidentified body found of an average-sized male, possibly bald, Some reports say that it is likely to be Jack Bogart who was traveling on horseback to Illinois about a year ago, so spring of 1872. It's also reported that his horse was found with, quote, a responsible man who purchased him from one of the suspected Confederates, unquote. I only found the name Bogart as being the unidentified boy in one source. It was a very early source, and then I, I tried to find it somewhere else, not super hard. I didn't go through all the stuff on all the different newspaper archive sites, but um, I, I couldn't find Bogart anywhere else. Maybe he turned up later, or... Um, It was an early report, and they just left it at that, never corrected it. In 1875, William York's widow Mary published an account of the murders in memory of her husband. It's called the Bender Tragedy. You can get a reprint on Amazon. She mentions um, Mr. Feerick, F-E-E-R-I-C-K, whose remains, she says, quote, unknown to the public, Unquote, have recently been identified with his wit- by his widow. I don't know if she's talking about the unidentified body found at the Bender Farm or one of the other victims found in the area, and I couldn't find that in any newspaper articles. As far as other missing people and remains found in the area, the museum article Uh, at leatherrock.com lists four victims not found at the Bender Place. Looks like uh, Mr. Joe Sowers went missing about 1869, which would have been before the Benders moved to the area. Most reports have them not getting there much before 1871. The body of a Mr. Jones is found in Drum Creek in 1871 and then two unknown men are found on the prairie in 1872. it doesn't say if they're found together or not my one criticism of the museum site is i couldn't find any footnotes for their sources so i'm i'm not sure what they're looking at maybe they really combed through local newspapers in the area so you know if if anybody wanted to really really go through that maybe they could find where they got that stuff from the alert listener will have noticed that eight victims are found at the bender farm william york brown McCroddy, mckenzie boyle and unidentified an guy possibly bogart I know that is only six victims so what about the other two that's a very sad story and I should warn sensitive listeners that it will involve a child a child is one of the victims of the benders so if you want to skip this part you can maybe um, oh, let's see maybe maybe 30, maybe 30 seconds a minute, maybe. Um, okay, so this is from findagrave.com, and I could verify most of this from newspaper and genealogy information in other places. George newton Langcore george's name is all over the place in sources about the only thing they have in common is they start with lo it is an uncommon name so long l-o-n-g-c-o-r may not be exactly right but let's go with it george sets out on the osage trail november 26 1872 and that is the date that's put on his tombstone. In a wagon pulled by a team of horses, his farm is located very close to Dr. William York's property near Cherryvale, which, if you remember, is where William York lived. In fact, it's reported that George and William are friends and that George bought the horses and wagon from William. George is another Civil War veteran, a Union man, an infantryman who saw lots of action, including the terrible Battle of Shiloh. A few years after the war, he moves to Kansas with his in-laws, the Gilmores, and his wife, Mary, to farm and work as a blacksmith. In 1871, George has a terrible year. He loses his infant son, Robert, then his wife dies very soon after giving birth to a daughter marianne she is our victim by the winter of 1872 he is ready to pack up and go live with his family back in iowa and who could blame him listeners i will say this seems very odd to me he takes off On November 26th, 1872, reportedly planning to camp near Drum Creek, about seven or eight miles away. This is not a good time to be on the road in the Midwest in 1872 and with an 18-month-old baby i wonder what the circumstances were going all the way to iowa in a wagon with a toddler in the winter seems like a really bad idea but apparently that is exactly what he does i i wonder if he's headed for a train station i you know i just don't know um but tragically he apparently stops at the Bender Farm on the way. Looking at the distance from his place to the Bender Place, that's probably about as far as he got before nightfall on the first day of his journey. I read somewhere that there may have been a bad storm that came up that day, so I don't know, maybe that's why he stopped there instead of, of camping where he had planned to. It just gives me goosebumps to think of him pulling up to what he thinks is a safe place to spend the night. But it's his and little Mary's last night. From the only correct account, he and his daughter were buried in the same grave, the daughter being placed between its father's feet. The father was stripped of all clothing, except his undergarments, as were all the other victims. But the child was buried with all its clothing, even to a pair of mittens, unquote. Apparently, the grandmother was able to tell them what George had dressed Marianne in before they left. George is bludgeoned and his throat cut and um, just warning for a few seconds this is pretty rough if you want to skip a little bit there are no injuries evident on little Marianne. people no doubt shudder at the thought that she was buried alive Many hope that the evil benders at least possessed enough mercy to perhaps smother her in her sleep before laying her next to her dead father. George's blood-stained wagon is found three months later, a few miles away from the campsite. site. Listen it, listeners, it's often said that this is the reason William York set out on the Osage Trail to look for George and the baby. I'm sure when they're missed, the news gets out. So that is possible, but I think it's probably more likely that he planned the trip to Fort Scott to see his parents. But he probably did ask about the Longcores and other missing people when he was on the trail. It's, it's well known that this is going on in the area. Who knows? Maybe something the Benders said made William suspicious while he was asking questions. We just don't know. Listeners, this is getting really long, and I'm barely over halfway done. It it's hard to edit when the audio file gets too big, so I'm going to stop now and make this part one and post it for you. This took me, oh, a couple of hours, so I should be able to get part two up in a couple of hours, too. So, that's part one of the case of the Bloody Benders. It turned out to be much more interesting than I thought it would be when I started researching Please subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends about the podcast. Also, if you could leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. You can email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website prisoncitymurders.blubrry.net. I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.